Father, thank you that you tell us and that we can believe because of Jesus that no power of hell and no scheme of man, not anyone else's nor our own, can pluck us from your hand. Would you help us to believe that tonight? Would you help us to believe that you are that powerful, that strong, that good? That if we give our lives to you, if we lose our lives to you, that we will find it in you. And that you do not lose anything that is given into your hand. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, so this last weekend um, was Valentine's Day. I don't, if, I don't know if you know that. You probably do. Um, and I'm sure it's not um, <clears throat> that wonderful of a day for everybody. Uh, for me, it turned out a little different than I thought it would. Um, my uh, wife and kids and I uh, decided, well, my wife and I decided that for our kids, we were going to get them um, each like a, some fish for their fish tank. We thought it would be fun to sort of go out with them and buy some fish. Um, and we get ready. To, we put that video. This is actually what we ended up getting when we went to the fish store. If you can play that real quick. Her name is Lila. Yeah. And she's amazing. It's not a fish, if you don't know that. Oh, man. That is so cute. So right now she's going looking for my other dog. Um, my other dog was barking and she wanted to do that. But this is what we picked up at the fish store. Uh, so uh, we walked in and um, we, we saw these fish and my wife was like, oh my gosh, it's adoption day and we're never going to, to PetSmart again on adoption day. Um, but, uh, but we saw these puppies and I'm looking at fish and she comes back and she's like, Jason, there's this one dog. And I was like, how much is it? She's like, 200 bucks. I was like, yo, let's go to lunch. Uh, and so we went to lunch and she's like, well, what if it's gone when I come back? And I'm like, you know, and I never play this card. I'm like, well, maybe it was meant to be, you know? Uh, and she liked hearing that. So we're like, okay, cool. She doesn't have to make the decision. Maybe God or fate or something will take care of it for us. And so we went eating lunch and, and I sort of was like, man, it's been, we haven't bought a dog in eight years. So our other dog's eight years old. Uh, we bought him sort of uh, about a month before we got married. We decided we would buy a dog and adopt a dog. Um, so we got this rescue named Sam, and he's the best dog I've ever known. He's amazing. Um, and uh, we're sitting at lunch, and I was like, you know, I think that'd be really cool. Like, I think our kids would love a dog and, and so forth. And, um, and, and Anna was like, wow, you really think we should do this? I was like, I don't know. And, you know, we went back to the store and there was this other family actually holding this dog. So she was the runt and both of us sort of have like a, like a heart for like runts. Like we like mutts and runts. And, uh, and, and so this other family was holding it and, and wa I walk up to the, uh, or Anna walk up to this lady and she's like, hey, um, we want to buy that dog, but somebody else is holding it. And she was like, just a second. And she walks over and she's like, I'm sorry, some other couple has actually made an offer on this dog. So unless you want to buy it right now, um, we're going to take it. And so she, she literally took the dog out of this little boy's hands, which made me feel really sad for like this long. But it actually did make me feel sad. I didn't think it would. Um, I did. But then I've got a bunch of little kids that are way cooler than those kids. And, um, and so we let our kids play with that dog. And, 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 and as I was sitting there with this dog, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, $200. Whew. And then like 40 bucks a month, you know, something like that for dog food and maybe a little bit more if we have to take them to the vet or do other things. And $40 a month sort of adds up, you know, in a budget. And health insurance for the kids is important. Because what if this dog comes home and bites a newborn kid, which I, I've never had that happen, but, but it does sometimes, you know, and that's sort of crazy. And, 
And then like, I was also sort of mindful of the fact that having a brand new puppy, um, even with a remarkable level of discipline, it's still often, at least for a very short season, um, and with no discipline for a very long season, it's a lot like having a newborn. Like for that first night, I got no, no more than 45 minutes of sleep in any stint. Um, you know, and that can go on for some days, and so it's just tiring, and all of these things, I had all these questions in my life, but I was sort of like, YOLO, you know, let's buy this dog. Uh, no, I didn't actually say that. Um, but, but what if I did, right? I mean, like, it seems okay for people to say things like that sometimes. You know, a, a high school student, um, maybe not raising kids or having a full-time job or anything else, you know, sort of saying that as an excuse. But what if I was like, I don't care if my kids get bitten, Let's bring it home. I don't mind bringing this puppy home. I, I, I'll forget it. We may not be able to afford milk for my family because of this $40 a month thing, but let's bring the dog home and just see what happens. Right? I mean, what if I really started using that phrase, YOLO? Now, I know that's old. I'll come back to that uh, at this point. Uh, I mean, in the scope of history, it's like three years old, not that old. But anyway, um, but, but that would be a strange thing if you saw maybe a parent deciding to use that as an excuse to make terrible decisions in, for their family. And yet this thing has permeated our culture like crazy. So a year ago in January, Drake, uh, who was uh, known for bringing this, this uh, YOLO thing out in, in popularity in mass, apparently there's like some bakery or something in Florida that's really mad at him because they had it first. But, um, but, he, but he came out with this word in the song that he had, and he went on Saturday Night Live one year ago and made a public apology on national television for saying that in the song because he thinks it's terrible that people are using it so much. Really, the Washington Post said it was the phrase everybody loves to hate. Like, I, even when I hear y'all use it, and nobody actually says it that I know of, but I see it written all the time on Twitter and Instagram. When it's used, it's always sort of sarcastic or the eyes roll and it's sort of silly. And when we were thinking about this sermon series, there's a part of me that was like, man, I, don't, I definitely don't want to start with YOLO. Like, it's already old. Every single post-hipster in the room is like, oh my gosh, dude, let's go cutting edge. And, and I'm like, yeah, and I, and I really was like, I should do something else. I shouldn't do this. But it, today was actually really interesting. The, every time I talked to somebody about it, initially everybody was sort of like, eh, YOLO, huh? And then all of a sudden we went way deep. Like everybody's got these nuances about it, what they really think about it and what it really means and why people say it and how it justifies things. And, and when I looked back in history, like although the, you only live once as a phrase or as a, as a statement isn't terribly old, what it represents and the sort of idea that it represents just keeps popping its head up all throughout history. Starting over 5,000 years ago, I mean, one of the very first pieces of writing that we have this idea comes out in the epic of Gilgamesh. One of the, one of the most significant iterations of this idea was uh, about 50, 50 years before Jesus came onto the scene, 20, well, something like that, uh, in a Greek philosopher, um, and he talked about this phrase, if you guys have ever seen Dead Poet Society, you've seen it, you've heard of it, whatever, but he talked about this phrase, carpe diem, seize the day. Seize the day. Or a few hundred years later, there was a Roman poet who talked about uh, sort of plucking the rose like right in its ripe time. And then the 17th century poet decided to take this idea in a very famous phrase uh, or sentence that says, gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Right? In our culture now, we have other, other things too and they just keep popping up. It's now or never. It's now or never. You only live once, comes up. And there's no day like today. You only live once. Life is too short. And no matter how we phrase it, and this is the thing I kept thinking, man, YOLO is so old. I shouldn't talk about that. It's not on Twitter. I think it's like top trending thing like every day still for three years on Twitter. I'll show some images in a second about that, or Daniel actually will in a second about that. 
But I kept, but what, what, impressed, what was impressed upon me is how significant this idea is all throughout history. Over and over, there is this wrestling, and this is sort of the way, I, what I'm seeing in the midst of it, there's this wrestling with, with how we find meaning in our lives in light of the fact that we're going to die. How do I find meaning in my life in light of the fact that I'm not guaranteed tomorrow? Over and over again, we must wrestle with this because brothers and sisters, we all are going to die. So what does that mean you're supposed to do today? And we can't shake this idea. And so throughout the ages, for thousands of years, we have been trying to figure out how to wrestle with this. And something like you only live once keeps coming up over and over and over again. Let me give you, um, I guess, would you put up some pictures of just as I search for the hashtag YOLO, um, these are some of the things that apparently it means, apparently, I've always wanted to buy the big can of tuna from Costco. So you know what? Today I said YOLO and did it. I have zero clue why that's significant, okay? Apparently YOLO means that. I haven't showered. So if you, I'm, I didn't take any care to erase these names, okay? So uh, I hope none of them are you. Um, please don't try to remember them. Uh, I'm not going to say them through the microphone. I don't want them recorded. But this um, woman says, I haven't showered since Thursday, YOLO. Jules, oh, I'm not going to say, okay. Uh, just, uh, I didn't read the real name. Okay, so just ordered myself a large pizza at Giordano's. Gior Giordano's. So it's somebody sitting at this table all by themselves and like, you know what, I probably shouldn't eat like a whole pizza by myself. YOLO. Okay, it's going to be a much shorter YOLO. Um, uh, this person uh, hasn't worn her retainer in a week. And now the bottom one doesn't fit. Like, y'all, I'm looking at this stuff, and like the, the last ones that we're going to get to in a second are the most common by far. But as I'm looking through some of these things, I'm like, y'all, like personal hygiene? Like, I just decided I'm going to buy a massive can of tuna. Like, somebody's never going to eat this whole can of tuna. They just thought they'd buy it, right? Another person's sitting there eating this huge pizza all by themselves. And, and this, this phrase, this idea, what's underneath this idea serves as justification for making these decisions. It's shortcutting the decision-making process or it's, or it's entering into this, you know, I probably shouldn't do this, but hey, you only live once, right? And what that means is I shouldn't worry about my teeth. You only live once, which means who cares what I smell like and how healthy I am? You only live once, so it doesn't matter how long that life is or how healthy my body is. Would you go to the next one? Going broke trying to get rich. Scared money don't make money. YOLO. Okay? So in this case... In this case, YOLO means I only live once, so amass as much wealth as I can. Take risks, right? Take risks. You only live once, y'all, so just come on. This girl um, is responding to somebody else. I loved her hashtag, though, um, and I'm not going to read the name up there, but she's, somebody else said, I, I don't have any money in my bank account anymore because I spent it all on something really stupid. And this person said, I feel the exact same way, and I'm about to drop more money on more stuff. Payday on Friday, though, YOLO. Hashtag smart millennial spending. Okay, so, so YOLO is used for all these other health decisions and stuff, and now it's like my spending habits. And, and she's summarizing a generation, and the way we spend is like this. This is how we decide what we're going to do with our money. Would you go to the next one? All right, so now we're going to the most common category, right? I'll just do my homework tomorrow morning, YOLO. Now, honestly, it seemed like nine out of ten YOLO things had to do with homework, school, and sleeping. We'll keep going to the next one. Haven't done homework in over a week, YOLO. I feel like I have something due tomorrow, but I'm not even going to bother with figuring out what it is. YOLO. <laughs> then my favorite, Barack Obama, our president. Speaking of YOLO, and that is a, a short link to the um, healthcare website. <laughs> 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 I think it's genius. <laughs> 
I really, I think that's absolutely genius. Uh, right? Oh, my gosh. So, so YOLO, apparently, this idea, I mean, think of how many other, like, the tentacles that this idea has in its reach, right? I mean, it has to do with school, with sleep. Most of you probably know that it has a lot to do with drinking. I asked one person in this room, I was like, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear YOLO? And they're like, drunk people. Um, and, and that doesn't surprise me at all. Like, it's used so often as an excuse. Like, I know I probably shouldn't do this, but hey, YOLO. Uh, drinking our bodies. It has to do with, with how we treat our bodies, what we put into our bodies, what we don't put into our bodies. Food, money, social life, adventure, and risk. Like, this concept, this idea is a part of the decision-making process for all of these things. What's going on? I know as I asked somebody else um, in the hub today earlier, asked a couple girls earlier in the hub, like what is this process right before somebody decides to throw out a hashtag like that? And, and pretty much with, without much, uh, there was like zero argument actually. They thought about it for a minute and then they both sort of came to agreement on this that like first you decide you want to do something and then you also decide after that that it's probably not a good decision. And then you say YOLO and do it. Like, it's like this trump card. Like, this is not a wise thing to do, but hey, let's do it anyway, sort of thing. Um, and, and there's a couple major problems I see with this. Number one, um, everybody has a totally different uh, understanding of what it is that we're supposed to do in light of this sort of thinking. I, I only live once, which I think seems that there's a little bit of ambiguity as I begin to process that. I looked at a Wikipedia article about it. I looked at the Urban Dictionary, which I feel like for things like this is very accurate. Uh, and, and these sorts of things. And they're all over the place. The nuance shifts just a little. But in almost every case, there's a sense of, there's a decision-making. Um, at least somewhere early on, there was this idea of risk and, and adventure involved. Now it's sort of just become a sarcastic thing to do stupid things that I shouldn't do. But, 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 but if I'm taking the healthiest example of, of you only live once, and I'm thinking like, what if somebody actually said, hey, I only live once, so I'm gonna go do this thing that I may not otherwise do, and that might actually be a good thing? The thing that they need to do or the thing that they want to do is probably gonna be different than what everybody else wants to do. One of the problems I have is even if we take the most positive sense of the phrase, some of us will think we're supposed to travel the world. Others of us are going to think that what we're supposed to do is eat fantastic delicacies from all over the world. Other people in this room are going to think, I need to ask that person on a date. And you can't just like take this thing for this person and put it on, on somebody else. I, I once, um, not with the phrase you only live once, but with the concept underneath these, the fact that I knew I was going to die one day. I was thinking, I think about that quite a bit, actually, um, and not like in a negative way. I just think about, maybe that's, you don't know that there isn't a negative way to think about that. But, um, but I, I think about this quite a bit. And one time I was thinking about it with regards to reading, and I, and I, I had this sort of freak out. It was like five or six years ago. And I went, okay, if I read like 25 to 30 books every year for the rest of my life, I can only probably read somewhere between 800 and 1,250 books. And I went, oh, crap. And I freaked out. And I was like, I got to figure out what that list is. Because like people have like a thousand books you should read before you die. And I was like, I got 250 electives. That's it. If I'm supposed to like follow that list. And I started having like this, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I started having like reading goals every year. Um, and I started thinking, I don't want to spend time reading like a bunch of throwaway books. I want to read the stuff that I'm going to be thankful for the rest of my life. And I want to read the stuff that I want to be talking about in the resurrected earth. That's the stuff I want to read. And I started thinking about all these things, you know? Now here's the trick. Most of you in the room are thinking, you absolute nerd. I would never want to spend so many hours of my life reading 800 to 1,250 books. The average college graduate only reads one book a year the rest of their life. 
The average high school graduate doesn't read a book on average the rest of their life, okay? So why do you want to spend all of your time reading 800 to 1,250? That's, three of you in the room are panicking right now because you're going, I only have like a thousand books left. Uh, three of you might be thinking that, but the rest of you aren't because the rest of you are not built like me. And what you want to, to, to taste and see and do and feel and experience in this life. I hate roller coasters. I cannot stand them. And for years, I lived in shame about this. I actually wondered if I would marry a girl who, when she found that out, she'd be like, ah, <laughs> like, and point at me and laugh. Like, I really, really worried about that. And I wasn't freed from it until, uh, I think it was my sophomore year of college. I was in Edmonton, Canada, um, at the Edmonton Mall. And they have a roller coaster inside the, the mall. And they have this gigantic, terrible device called the, uh, I think it's called the Drop of Doom. Uh, maybe the Tower of Terror. They have instances of these in, like, like every theme park now. Um, and, and I was there with my dad, and he loves roller coasters. Anything that is a physical adrenaline rush, he absolutely loves. And so I was feeling like, man, like I got to do this. My dad thinks I'm cool, and I hate roller coasters. So I went on the roller coaster and didn't like it. And he was like, ah, like it was a dumb roller coaster. You'd like a bigger one better. Um, and he's like, let's do the drop of doom. And I was like, I don't want to do the drop of doom. And, and he's like, have you ever done anything like it? And I said, well, no, I don't think I'd like it though. And he said, come on, you got to try. And I have it in my mind that, that masculine men in our culture like roller coasters. And so I'm supposed to like things like this right? I felt this pressure to have to do this. And so I, I actually get on this ride because I'm like, maybe I'm just not giving this stuff a shot. I'm scared out of my mind, but whatever. Let's get on this thing. And it's like, if you guys have never seen these things, okay, it is like, uh, it's about as big as this front part here. And there's like four of us that sit on this bench and they have these gigantic like harnesses that come down and click over you and you can't move at all, which is pretty terrifying when you're in a ride that allows you to do that uh, or doesn't allow you to move because um, you know that you're going to move fast. And that's why they don't allow you to move. Um, and so anyway, in this mall, they have this, this glass tower built out of the roof that goes up six stories outside. I mean, like uh, the building is normal, but then this thing goes up outside of it, like this, uh, this uh, you know, cube, rectangle thing in the sky. And you basically just like go up the outside of this thing. And as you're going up, you're looking out over the gorgeous countryside and you get up like six stories and then you're inside this cage, but then it rolls out at the top. And then the cart that you're sitting on is you look down and they, of course, make it like a mesh grate at the bottom. You can't, you can see right through it to the bottom. And you're just looking down for your feet from like six or seven stories down and, and you're just sitting there. And the way this machine works is they actually, um, they have like a randomized timer for when it drops. And the way it works is the weight of the cage and the weight of bodies just pulls it to the ground. There's actually, once it goes up, there's zero mechanics other than gravity that pull it down. Um, so it, it's held on the back by these clamps on these poles and all they do is just go like this, right? And so I'm sitting out and I hear this click. And then the whole ride is summarized like this, six stories. Six stories, all the time going up, all the time waiting. The whole ride was this. And it's over. Uh, that's how fast it is. Like you fall straight down and you roll out on your back for a while. And I'm, I'm like sitting there in the chair. And my dad runs over to the side. He's like, wasn't that awesome? And I was like, I hated it. And he's like, you don't want to do that again? I'm like, never. He's like, I'm going to go again. You know, he did it again. And, and, but I, I cannot tell you guys how freeing it was for me to do that. Because I did that and I was like, never again. And I feel zero shame about having to be a guy that likes these things. I don't understand why anybody enjoys them. Really, it makes zero sense to me why you would want to go up six stories and fall. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, I'm not like judging guys. I, I don't understand it because that's not how I'm built. Some of you love roller coasters. Some of you would love to travel. I have friends that are traveling the world 
seeing all sorts of places. And there are times I think, man, it'd be really fun to, you know, go to this place, whatever. I would probably rather read most of the time. I would rather make longer-term friendships than continue to experience shorter-term things around the world. I struggle to maintain deep friendships across distances, though. Maybe that's some of it. I don't know. But, but each of us are going to be built a little differently. One of the problems I have with this concept of you only live once and sort of what it means as it's spread around on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and these sorts of things is we get images of how everybody else is soaking up life, do, living the really cool thing, finding meaning in the moment. Often what that means is just spontaneity and, and high emotions, okay? But this is what it means, and, I, and it's so hard for us to resist that maybe we're supposed to enjoy that stuff too. And one of the problems I have with it is that we're all created a little different. The ways that we need to be satisfied, what it means to take risks is a little different. I actually find zero pressure in public speaking because the ideas that I'm communicating are, are the center of attention, not me. I hate being the center of attention in, an, in like just any sort of random room of people. I can't stand it. For some of you, it would be a massive risk to come up and give public speaking. For me, that's not a big risk. For me, it's not. For me to be vulnerable and share how I'm doing with somebody, honestly, is way more terrifying than a roller coaster. That's what it means. If I'm gonna take, if I'm gonna take a risk and grow, the way, the way I need to take risks, the way I need to seek adventure is probably gonna be a little different than the way you do. If some of you feel this pressure to have to be a certain kind of person that does these things you see on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook or something, would you please be freed from that? You don't need to like the food everybody else likes. You don't need to like the music everybody else likes. You don't need to go on the adventures everybody else goes on. How did God make you? Really, you only do have your life. Don't live somebody else's. That's one of the problems I have with this thing. It implies that there's this, because of the way we communicate and the way we talk about it, that there's this one thing that we're all supposed to do, and I, that's just not true. I'd suggest there's something like eight billion ways to address this. The second problem is, even if I could read 1,250 more books, it wouldn't be enough. If I traveled to 50 different countries and I got to learn 12 to 15 different languages and got to see cultures or whatever, it wouldn't be enough. If you got married, it wouldn't be enough. If you were never, ever poor and you were able to give away 50% of all of your income to other people who didn't have as much as you, that wouldn't be enough. If you were famous, it wouldn't be enough. To me, this is most clearly seen um, on the road to Emmaus. There's this scene in Luke's gospel uh, where after the resurrection, Jesus is walking down this road and sees two guys who were talking about all the events that had occurred in the past three years, two and a half years. And Jesus sees them and, they, and he sort of says, what are you talking about? And they're like, wait, you're not from around here, are you? You don't, you don't know what's going on? And he says, tell me what's going on. And they start telling him and they said, man, there was this guy and he did all these things, all these things. But, but we had hoped that he was the redeemer of Israel. I want you to imagine, okay, if I had done all the things Jesus did, me. Imagine if I had fed thousands and thousands of people with nothing but a ba couple baskets of bread. Imagine that I walked on water. Imagine I calmed storms. Like I literally stood in front of storms and I said, shh, and they stopped. Imagine I healed sick people. I laid hands on them. Imagine I, I, people were blind and I gave them sight. Imagine I raised somebody from the dead. 
and then I die. Three days later, imagine you walk into a room and two people are talking about me and you say, oh, who are you talking about? And they're like, Jason, you know, I mean, we just really hoped that he would have done a little bit more. Like, can you imagine after I had lived that kind of life? Think about that for a minute. The, all the things that Jesus did. And he meets these people on the road to Emmaus and they aren't saying, man, so thankful that a person like Jesus lived. It's a shame he only had like 30 some odd years. I wish he could have had like 70, you know, but I hope we can all be more like him. He was just fantastic. We're all trying to be more like him. No, they were disappointed because it wasn't enough. We had hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel, they said. And do you know why they said that? Because everybody he healed would get sick again. Everybody he fed got hungry at the next meal. Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, died again. All of those things Jesus did didn't solve this problem of the fact that we are going to die. All things need to be made new. I'm so thankful that Jesus fed people, but they needed to be hungry again. They needed water and food that would never run out. They needed to not get sick anymore. They needed to not die anymore. And Jesus makes those promises. But at that point, before they had known he had raised from the dead, they said it's not enough what he had done so far. None of those things can fix our mortality. All of these things, if there is no resurrection, end in death. Paul says, think about this, brothers and sisters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. He says, if Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, then everything I have preached to you, what we believe, our faith, it's totally in vain, which means empty. Vanity, vain, it means empty, of zero substance, having no effect. If Jesus didn't physically, bodily raise from the dead, all this stuff doesn't matter. I know he healed. I know he, whatever. We're all still dying though. Cancer still exists in the world. There are poor people everywhere. Jesus, God incarnate, apparently walked on the earth and there were still problems around when he left. If that's it, if all we have is hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied, he said. I think some of us are aware of this. We're aware of the futility of sometimes of death and these things, and we try so hard to fight against it. Some of us in this room are so keenly aware and afraid of death and its power that we stockpile, or our plan is to stockpile wealth. I don't ever want to need. I want to be one who provides. I'm going to use dollars and coins and, 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 and numbers on a computer that represent something like money in the stock market. I'm gonna use those things as security blankets and walls for a house and gates around my house and distance from neighbors that could harm me. I'm gonna insulate myself with money only in the end, having to give up whatever money I have probably to somebody else who won't think about it the same way I do. And I won't be able to buy eternal life. Some of us, money's not the thing, right? Though I mean, Some of us, instead, we try to amass some kind of power I don't want to be hurt. And so I'm going to become somebody. I don't want to die. I'm going to become somebody that is powerful enough to manipulate and change the world around me. I want to build some kind of empire. 
only of course to lose it when we die. And if anything that we have left gets handed over to somebody else, they're not gonna think about it in the same way we do. Or, or maybe it's with health. I'm gonna try to be as young as I possibly can forever and try to betray the fact that I get old one day. If I take care of my body and I don't think about it, maybe I'll never get sick and die. No matter what I do, eventually one day my body will deteriorate and I will die. Knowing this, some of us go the opposite route and we become fatalistic. That first account, if you guys have ever seen it, I recommend watching it sometime um, on SNL, that one that Drake hosted. Um, Andy Samberg's crew uh, band did a, a thing on YOLO and it was all about th that first part. I only live once and so make sure I don't take any risks ever. And so they like pull out their teeth to make sure they don't bite their tongue and they bury money in their backyard and all these things to make sure that their life never, and it doesn't work. That's the whole joke for them is we can't actually keep all this. Some of us don't go that route though. And this is what I see mostly on Twitter and stuff. It is the more sort of sarcastic, cynical, fatalistic route where you only live once simply means, uh, simply means that I don't really care about my future anymore. We're all just food for worms. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter in the long run. So I'm just gonna blow this cash. I'm gonna get hammered tonight. I'm gonna sleep in tomorrow, which for a matter of minutes might allow me to forget about the rest of life, might offer some promise of 20, 30, 40 minutes, maybe a few hours of something like numbing. But then, since we all only actually have one life, later I gotta deal with the consequences of all that. I don't have somebody else's life after I've blown the money and, and, and made a bunch of terrible decisions. I gotta deal with broken relationships. I gotta deal with bad grades. I gotta deal with, with terrible financial planning because I only have one life. I don't have another one. So I gotta deal with all that. Whether we fight against death in that first instance or we surrender to it in some kind of uh, hedonism in the end our mortality wins so I think it's hard to come up with what we're supposed to do with today with something like YOLO it's not enough it's not enough real lasting meaning in any of these things it's, I know it's silly looking at the tuna can thing right but, but are all of those examples but lasting meaning just slips through our fingers like sand and no matter how hard we try to cling to it with something like planning so securely for the future or, or, or throwing out our future for the sake of the present, in either case, meaning just slips through our fingers no matter how hard we try to grasp it. But none of us can shake the thirst for it. It's built in you. This is why some iteration of this phrase keeps coming up generation after generation. You were created with purpose and meaning and value you carry around in your being, whether you know it or not, the very image of God. So what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do with this hunt for meaning, with wanting meaning so bad in your life, but, but having it brush up against the fact that you one day will die? What are we supposed to do? I wanna look at this parable of Jesus in Luke chapter 12, um, verses 13 through 31. Would you throw that up? So Jesus is, uh, he's been hanging out teaching for a little bit. And um, at this point, right before, before then, we're told that thousands of people began to come into the city. And you sort of have this image uh, as you read through the text of thousands of people sort of in and around this place where he's teaching, huge, huge crowds. 
And someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And so right here in this very beginning, what we're gonna find in this parable is Jesus begins to capture both sides of this you only live once uh, spectrum, if you can call it, or the two doors. This, the, those of us that sort of think with a mentality of I must live for today. I don't have tomorrow. I don't have the rest of my life. It's exhausting to think about forever. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. I don't know if I can recover from what's happened in my past. All these things, all that makes me wanna do is shut down and live for the moment. Sleep in, watch Netflix. I, I don't really see a lot of value and purpose in this particular romantic situation, but whatever. This is this first guy. Tell him to divide the inheritance with me today. I don't care about the relationship with my brother. I don't care that I'm only supposed to get it after he dies or that we're supposed to maintain some kind of family thing or something like this. Like, give me what I want right now, Jesus. And then he's gonna move into an example of somebody else who's doing the opposite thing, who they actually are so scared of ever losing anything that they're trying to protect themselves from, any, from, from death, really. So let's read through this and know that this tension's at play in the story. So teacher, tell my brother to divide, to divide this inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, all, all sort of wanting what isn't yours, rightfully yours. Take guard that you, take, uh, be on your guard against that kind of thinking. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be that a job or a certain body, or a certain kind of uh, a status or marriage or anything else. Your life does not consist in possessing these sorts of things. And he told them a parable saying, this is a parable, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then he turned after he told this parable to his disciples and he says to his disciples, therefore I tell you, disciples, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They, they, don't, they don't do these things that we do so much. Work so hard and look for the results of their work so much. They don't do either of these things. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, if you cannot add one single hour to your life through worry and anxiety, why are you anxious about everything else, about the rest? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? 
And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom. This is what we're supposed to do with our questions about meaning in life. The clothes we wear, the food that we eat, storing these things up in barns. Jesus is using these images to summarize all of the ways that we try to tackle our mortality. All the things we try to do to insulate ourselves from death in the world. Everybody does this. But you seek the kingdom of God. And of course, where we find it is in his son. So we seek Jesus. We chase after him, usually only to find that he's been after us the whole time. Notice that he doesn't tell you when you read this thing. He doesn't say, and he says, uh, it, it's a, it's a uh, recapturing of what Jesus also said in Matthew chapter six. He, at least that, maybe he said it twice in two different settings. Matthew chapter six, Jesus says the same thing, basically. And in both cases, he doesn't say, you know what, you don't need food, you don't need clothing, you don't need provision, you don't need to be taken care of. Those are not things for you. You, what you need is the kingdom of God. You don't need those things. That's not what he says. He says, stop being so anxious about those things. Stop worrying about those things. Stop chasing and seeking after those things. God knows you need them and he will provide them for you. These things that you want so much, security, comfort, purpose, meaning, your needs, he alone, he alone wants to give these things to you in a way where you don't have to seek after them with anxiety and fear and, and so much chasing and seeking. You simply seek his kingdom. And, and these are not harsh words, okay? These are not like, like how, how dare you do wrong things. So the next line actually to me is really helpful in, in framing the tone of this comment that he makes to his disciples. Would you put up the next line? It's Luke uh, 12, 32 now. It's the very next thing he says. He says, fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Lest you think when I said stop worrying about food and, and drink and clothing, you don't need those things. Go about your business with something else. Don't worry about them because God, who is powerful, he made everything and he loves you and cares for you and knows your needs. He actually wants to give you the kingdom. So why are you so worried? Why do you feel the need to, to forsake your future for the sake of the present as if God can't meet you both places? and provide needs in both places. Why do you feel this worry that you, you can't actually ever enjoy a moment today? You can't do anything today that might be uh, restful or good or, in, or enjoyable or something because you have to be so anxious about your future. Do you not know that God actually wants, it's his good pleasure. He doesn't just give you the kingdom. He takes pleasure in giving his children the fullness of his kingdom. Some of us, I'm convinced, are hunting around the world for wisdom, for the patterns of this world. How's everybody else doing it? How did they get it? What am I supposed to do? Because we have not known or seen or heard that the God of all creation, that the high king of the universe has come near to us. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we can change. So we can find new life. Abundant life, he would say. So you and I can turn and give our lives over to him the one who finds pleasure in giving us 
this kingdom of life. And when we give him our lives, when we lose our lives in Jesus, he promises that we'll find it. We keep seeking meaning, many of us do, maybe all of us do, in our spontaneity or in our planning. Some of us are bent in one way or the other. Finding meaning in the spontaneity, finding meaning uh, apart from the, the, pattern, the, 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 the sort of uh, set path that I think I'm supposed to be on in the world. I need to break from that and find my real meaning somewhere else in some escape. Other of us, others of us try to find meaning in this very rigid plan that I cannot deviate from because if I do, I will be lost. And we do that because we haven't known that meaning has come to us in Christ already. That's a huge statement. Some of us may have heard that. Maybe I can say that you can have you, meaning is in Christ, that he loves you, that he has pursued you, that, that he is with you, that you're united with him, that he doesn't leave you alone and never forsakes you. Maybe you can say all of those things and intellectually even nod your head and agree, but some of us forgetting that we have a God who doesn't grow weary or faint and is offering us the resources of his kingdom, some of us have become just exhausted and tired. Our vision has become stunted. We no longer look to the horizon or to the hills. We no longer look into our future and long for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. No, instead, we just try to push through the day or the week or through midterms or through the season, hoping that when all of this is done, when all this is done, I'm hoping that because of what I did in high school, because I really tried hard a couple of times, I hope that God lets me just in the back door of heaven. I'll be exhausted and worn out and my head hung low, but I'll be thankful. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And not rest to get through the day or the month or midterms or the semester or through college but a rest that will allow you to run a race, this race to the end. Will you put up on this last piece of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter nine? This is what Paul has to say about the life that you and I are in. And he's particularly, this is a really fascinating chapter. Um, I'd encourage you to read it in, um, in light of the fact how much you think about what's yours and what your rights are. It becomes a very fascinating chapter uh, with that in mind. But, but here's sort of how he comes to the end of this um, piece of, di- piece of uh, writing. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Uh, at, at the time uh, in Corinth, it was the, the site of the, uh, the second sort of most famous uh, athletic games. The Olympics obviously were the most famous. Um, this was the site of the second most famous one and the winners got these just uh, crowns, these crowns of Uh, of leaves basically and they perished so he's specifically speaking to that these runners they race like this for the glory of these people honoring them for winning these races and just getting like a wreath around their head and it perishes we are running for something imperishable and Paul says so I do not run aimlessly I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Paul in other places talks about um, sort of counting everything as rubbish, as garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He says in other places that he would rather be with Christ than here, but he's here for the behalf of the people he's writing to. That's it. And in many times you start to read in Paul this idea that he doesn't care about long-term plans by the way he's talking. He seems to throw himself at the mercy of God over and over and over again, left for dead, shipwrecked, whipped, thrown rocks at, all of these things. And you sort of go like, what long-term plans is Paul making? You start reading his letters and pay attention to how many times he's saying, I plan to come visit you. I was intending to do this, but I'm doing that. I'm actually spending years just collecting um, resources for the church over in Jerusalem that I need to bring back um, because I have a plan to bring money back to them. That's what I want to do. I actually have no more evangelism to do in Asia, so I'm going to head over to Spain. He actually said that. There's no more work left for me in Asia, so I'm going to go over to Spain instead. Plans after plans after plans. And at the same time, there's, there's this tension, I guess, I'm trying to, to communicate between what does it look like to see somebody? Of course, we see this most clearly in Jesus. But the way Paul's writing here, I want to I point out something in a sec. We see this tension of here is somebody that doesn't seem to forsake the future for the present, nor does he forsake the present for the future. In every single moment, he's trying to consider what is it that the will of God is? What is it that God would have me do? And so here what we find is Paul saying, I am actually disciplining my body so that I can win this marathon. This is not I rolled out of bed and I'm gonna run it today and then what about tomorrow? I don't know. I'm running this race as if to win it and I'm going to discipline my entire body and I'm not going to run aimlessly. Life is a marathon brothers and sisters. It is not a sprint. The meaningful work of our lives is the work of our king that he has shared with us. It's seeing his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's seeing our families restored, our friendships thrive, justice happen all over the face of the earth. It's the poor lifted up. It's the hungry being fed. It's the whole earth redeemed. That's not a weekend job. That's not something you do your first couple of years out of college before you find something else to do. This is our whole lives and more. It is the work of the entire church throughout the ages, empowered and led by the Spirit of God on the foundation of what Christ has done and united with him for his glory and our good. The work that needs to be done requires perseverance, long-term vision, and notice that he doesn't simply say that we should run the race. He says, run, so run that you may obtain it, the, the, the crown. Run that you may win. Some of us are so easily discouraged, I think, by the work before us in our lives because we simply haven't been preparing or we've only been preparing for a weekend or a season and we haven't been preparing for eternity. And I know that sounds sort of maybe silly or cliche to me. That sort of, I sort of get cynical when people say things like that. But, but really, are you, the way you live your life with everything you have, all of the resources at your disposal, your body, your time, your money, your free time, the way you think, what you feel, what you meditate on, how you remember, what you hope for, what you talk about, what you read, what you watch. Are these things just getting you through the night? Are you preparing yourselves to finish college? Are you living like God has actually invited you to be a part of his kingdom coming on earth? I don't know what you think hard work looks like or meaningful fruit of work looks like. The Mona Lisa was painted over four years. I don't know what you've ever spent four years straight doing. 
The statue of David was two years. Mona Lisa probably was, probably took a couple breaks and came back, okay? The statue of David wasn't the case. For two years, Michelangelo, for two years straight, did nothing but worked on one statue. The Sistine Chapel is a little more obvious. That took six years just because of how big it is. Laying on his back for six years straight every day. It's beautiful stuff. People look at it and go, wow, there's something meaningful here. Look at the time that it, that it took to do these things. What are you preparing for? By one expert's count, this was made famous in a Malcolm Gladwell book, uh, and there's some argument to it, but, but this just sort of at least gives us a ballpark that's really fascinating. By one expert's count, he, he, he sort of looked at a bunch of different um, uh, categories of life, different sorts of things, and estimated that it takes roughly 10,000 hours of very specific high-level training for anybody to be considered an expert in any field. That's 40 hours a week for five years straight. And that's not just like going to the gym. That's being with like a personal trainer on a very regimented training level for 40 hours a week for five years before you can be considered an expert in a field. Or, or if you're doing it on the side, that's 20 hours a week for 10 years. That's how long, and that, this, was, this blew up in the business world, okay? This, and people sort of argue about it, and, and people sort of go, that's not 10,000 hours. And they, when they say it's not 10,000 hours, they're never saying it's less. They're always saying it's more. I've met a ton of kids who want to be professional athletes. But how many of those kids have ever considered the workload of a professional athlete? Do you know that the average, after a bunch of interviews, the average NCAA football player at a high-caliber football school spends 44.8 hours a week in football. And that doesn't count, that doesn't count games. 44.8 hours a week doing football stuff. An NFL athlete will often work just during the week, again, not games, just they'll, they'll, they'll get up and start driving to their uh, practice field or to their, whatever facility they're training in. They'll start driving from their place at six o'clock in the morning and they don't get home till five. Okay? So you got 11 hours a day. They don't get like breaks where they go somewhere else. 11 hours a day, five days a week, not including games during the off season. That's, that's, off, that's always actually after 44.8 hours uh, plus college, um, plus family, plus any, uh, girlfriends. I know my brother actually has a full scholarship to play football at a D1 school, and he still during the summers has to work part-time and has to find other ways to make money during the school year because he doesn't get paid. It's great they didn't have to pay for college, but he actually has zero money to take out his girlfriend or his fiance now, I guess. There's a huge difference between playing, for example, peewee football and NFL football. There's a huge difference between um, being invited to participate in a marathon. How many miles is a marathon, somebody? 26.2? Okay, thanks. So I'm, I'm I know a lot about marathons, obviously. I'm a runner. Um, but, but in 26.2 miles, there's a huge, huge difference between somebody who signs up to be a part of a marathon and somebody who wins a marathon. I have a lot of friends who run marathons. I have, don't have any that have won one. Maybe I do and I just don't know it and I should tell them. Uh, that's great, but I don't think so. But can you imagine the training that would go into actually winning one? And this is what Paul says our lives ought to look like. As you are being prepared to do, do the work of his kingdom that God has laid out before you, do you know that God would see fit to have you win the race, not just be a part of it? My hope is that none of you settle for giving up on that kind of future. That you see that you've been invited to participate in the renewal of all things and that you and I might actually only live once, okay? 
But the hope is that you live forever, not just through the weekend or not just till you're 50 or 60 or 70 or 80. And that God would see fit that the decisions that you make today, this weekend, over spring break, the rest of the semester, over the summer, over the next four years, three years, two years, whatever, that these things are moving you and everything else to the end of the renewal of all things. School, your job, your roommates, your family, your romance, your finances, your free time, everything belongs to the Lord. You only live once, but your life was purchased so that you might live for Jesus, for his glory and for everybody else's good. And that you might be free and no longer a slave to the patterns of this world, brothers and sisters, wandering around, like looking for, hoping to find meaning somewhere when he has come right into your world and offered it to you in his son. And do not lose hope. I don't know how that can happen if you do not know the one who is with you the entire time and the one who does not grow weary and does not faint. I don't know how you lose, I don't know how you stay hopeful if you don't believe he's united with you or how you stay hopeful if you don't have a vision for what he wants to do in this world and in your lives to have you flourish. But if you belong to him, no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand till he returns or calls you home. Here in the power of Christ, that's where you stand. I hope and I pray that by God's grace and the power of his spirit, that you begin to believe in something like that and that that is so much more powerful than being entrapped and enslaved to the idea that a spontaneous act of pleasure or entrapped or enslaved to maybe if I don't screw up for 60 years, that either one of those things would give you the meaning that you're wanting. They can't. I hope that you can know and trust and begin to believe if you haven't yet that God is the only one who can satisfy you in his son. That's it. Let's pray. Father, I am um, I'm thankful that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens whose name is Jesus. Thank you. And I pray that because of him, we can hold fast to our confession. Those of us in this room who've confessed um, that he is Lord and we've placed our lives in him, would you give us hope and confidence that he is who he claimed to be? And let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of our need. Father, I pray for my friends and my brothers and sisters, for me, that you would help us learn how to run a race in order that we might win that you give us hope to do it, that you'd help us believe that we can by your power and with your leadership. Help us, Father, not to be um, conformed to the patterns of this world and to let that have such devastating effects on what we believe about ourselves and how we interact with our friends and family and make decisions for the future and everything else. Instead, would you uh, renew our mind and help us to know what the will of, what your will is, what is good and peaceable and what will bring us lasting joy and meaning. 
Help us, God, to believe these things. Help us not to grow weary. We need to know that we can come to you, the one who gives us rest and the one who will never leave or forsake us and will run with us. It's in his name I pray these things, amen.